This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is always accommodative. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? I'm exceptionally well this morning. It is a beautiful Friday morning in Sydney, and I am feeling pretty good. That's partly because I'm a Roosters fan, and we're about to win the grand final, so I've got to be happy about that. Those of you who aren't Roosters fans, don't give me too much grief. You just wish you were me. But enough about football, at least for now. I mentioned that we are always accommodative, and there was a reason for that, Matt. We're going to talk a little bit about the Fed's change, or maybe not, in interest rate policy, which affects us in lots of different ways. We're also going to talk a little bit more about the banks in the news. We're going to talk about ANZ and NAB, at least. And, of course, as we record this, the Royal Commission hasn't yet handed down its interim report, but that's coming later today. So I'll have more to say about that next week. We're going to talk about your favourite company, Doc. Ooh. We're going to talk about Tesla. All right. We're also going to talk about Zero, and we're going to cover a mailbag question from one of our listeners. So, mate, let's get to it. The end of accommodative interest rate policy from the US Fed. Now, was it Thursday? No, Wednesday night our time. I think so. The yeah. US Fed decided to put rates up another 25 basis points as the tosses in the industry call it, or 20.25% as we like to call it in the real world, uh, up by 0.25% to between, is it two and a quarter and two and a half percent now, I think is the range? That is correct. And there was some talk about this either being the end or not of the rate rises because of that one single word, accommodative. What does the word mean and what actually happened at the Fed, mate? Right. So um, I guess accommodative basically means that, you know, you have a very low interest rate, uh, lower than... uh, uh, long-term averages, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of below inflation. I guess, you know, you want inflation to be around, or the Feds like inflation around the 2% mark. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, assuming that they're going to get there to, you know, that sort of 2% mark over the long term, then uh, what this is saying is that, you know, the Fed interest rates are now around the inflation numbers. And therefore, it's uh, end of uh, accommodation, accommodative, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it what just, we would call in Australia expansionary policy, I think. Is it fair to say it's kind of the, the idea that it's actually stimulatory? Is that, is it, that, are yeah. they kind of all the same word? Yeah. So stim- it's not stimulatory right now. Uh, well, it's still very stimulatory in the sense that it's still very low interest rates. Right. Um, it's about to drop the word saying that, you know, it's not zero. It used to be, you know, close to zero Man. not too long back. Literally, yeah, yeah. Right. So um, it's kind of fair bit up. And uh, the, the Fed's plot, what's called a dot plot, which is essentially the prediction of the various people on the for- oh. Fed's board. Don't the pundits love the dot plots? The uh, pundits love the dot plots and, the, and even the Fed folks love the dot plots, right? <laughs> they, you know, they, they plot it and they put it out, oh, uh, which basically shows what they think the long-term trajectory is, yeah. which uh, they're thinking is going to be somewhere around 3 to 3.5% three for okay. uh, by 2020. So there's a bit more to go, but the Fed kind of... So the, the whole accommodative removal of the word, inclusion of the word in the commentary... They're kind of saying we're getting closer to that point where we feel like that's about average, about balanced, right? About normal. Yeah. Okay. For for the economy in the current state, I guess they think right. things are normal. Now what and and so okay, let's let's get out of, let's get out of Fed land for a sec. What does that mean for the rest of us? Okay, so a few things. I mean, uh, the interest rates being low, uh, you can therefore think that the discount rates that we were applying to our stocks or, you know, the, the value of money in the future mm-hmm. was, you know, technically higher than it, you know, if it was zero, it's higher 
than it is now in, right. in that sense. Right. That's that's one thing. So the higher the interest rate, the lower the future expected return. Is that reasonable? Th- th- that's a reasonable right. a reasonable approximation. That's one. It also means that you know uh, it's um, it's going to cost you more to borrow money than it was costing you uh, in the in the past. So mm-hmm. therefore, you know, it's going to put some breaks. It's going to what they call prevent the economy from overheating. <laughs> right. Right. So that's what they're trying to do is that, you know, the economy there is growing very strongly and they want to stop the economy from overheating. So, you know, they, they want too much growth is not good. <laughs> Especially not for the central bank. And, and yeah. why, why is too much growth not good? Just let, let's let's get into syntax. Yeah. So the, the economy is growing gangbusters. Yeah. The Fed's saying, oh, that's not okay. And people in the, in the physical economy are saying, well, hang on, I, I like growth and I like more jobs and I like wages going up and I like things doing better. Why is that such a well, terrible you thing? Well, know, pe- people could borrow and waste money, basically. They, <laughs> they could borrow, waste money. You know, uh, asset price, uh, prices would inflate. So lots of other things happen because, right. you know, right. you are uh, – uh, essential money is too easy to to uh, to have, right? And fair to say, almost every single time in history that growth gets out of control, it ends badly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so you don't, you know, you want to. There's some sweet spot here, or at least that's what the economists think that that's. <laughs> that's what they hope. That's, that's, what, they that's, hope. that's, that's what they that's what they hope. So. All right. So uh, overall, like I'm 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 the school of thought to say that I I I like somewhat counterintuitively interest rates going up because it does say that the the central bankers have basically, to your point, decided the economy is doing very, very nicely, thank you very much, and they don't need to stimulate the economy further. At least, when I say I like them going up, I like them going up from very low to average because that, that says yep. things are back on their feet. To my mind, it's the equivalent of taking the taking the drip out of the arm of the patient, right? For yep. many years post-GFC, this was an economy that was kind of sick, uh, recovering, they're kind of now saying, okay, we, we feel good about this. Maybe maybe yeah. the occasional Panadol, but no no need for kind of IV antibiotics. Things are, things are back to normal. And while it kind of on one level, you know, are you better off having the drugs than not? Well, at some level, maybe. And and does the body have to take over? And does that add some level of risk? I'm, I'm torturing the analogy horribly, but you get the idea. When the when the economy is good enough, the Fed doesn't need to kind of keep the keep the IV in the arm. That I reckon that's a good thing. That's a great thing. Other than there are some negatives around asset prices and the fact that debt costs a little more to repay. Yeah, and and there's and there's one big benefit here too. Like you know, if something bad happens in the economy or in the world, they have the ability to therefore cut rates again. Ah, and sort of, the old know. dry powder. So they have some dry powder, and and I, nice. I think that's really good. You know, if your rates are zero, how much you know you can go negative, I right, guess. Right, but right. I mean, uh, yeah. So I think overall, good. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right. Now, speaking of that, though, and, and this is your favorite topic. I'm not going to let you rant on this for too long, Doc, only because, uh, frankly, I disagree with you. Give me but, the opportunity. <laughs> but more importantly, because we want to keep the, the podcast moving. All right. So, so there are a couple of bank stories that kind of, I'm going to mm. segue nicely. Alyssa's won't even realize I'm singing. Mm. This is going to be so seamless, mate. So. <sighs> From interest rates to house prices. Uh, do you like that? I love it. ANZ came out this week and said that they expect house prices to fall 10% from peak to trough. And that process will take another 18 months or so until 2020 to fall th- to, to happen. Uh, I So there's two things, right? First is obviously most of us own a house, live in a house, rent. We're all involved in the property market in one way or another. So that's kind of important. The other is if you're a bank shareholder, that has some connotations for future bank profits, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, first of all, I'm just going to say that I'm very disappointed that you know ANZ is not following my peak to trough uh, predictions. Okay. So, um, so, what, are you, what did you, for, for the record, yeah, as much as I hate I, to ask, what yeah. are you, what are your predictions? So, my peak to trough is 25. percent Oh, is is what I think uh, is going to happen. It's going to make just housing more affordable to all the people on the sideline. So, you're saying once uh, ANZ's 10 percent comes to pass, you got 15 percent to go. Yeah, yeah. and and, and, and I'm saying that as a home loan uh, or you know person with a home loan with yeah. a home and so on. So, yeah, Mate, yeah. there are people going to be throwing things at you on the street after that. Twenty five percent. There's no reason to, you know, you don't kill the messenger. You don't, <laughs> there's no point shooting the messenger. But that, that aside, the national pastime. We love uh, shooting messengers. Yeah, the mess- <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I should be careful of what I say. Um, um, yeah. So it, it does mean so it, if the rate. Okay. So a couple of things. The Fed rates goes up as we have talked before. Yes. It means that what the wholesale funding market rates go, which is essentially when our banks borrow overseas, they have right. to pay more to borrow. And about half to a, a third well, to half of funding comes from overseas. Yeah. So if the cost of overseas funding goes up, then the average cost of funding, when you mix the RBA funding and the or the local funding and the overseas funding, the average cost of that funding goes up. Yep. And then rates should go up to maintain those margins. Yeah, so therefore rates go up. And therefore, you know, as we have seen, out of cycle rates or more out of cycle rates increases could happen. Right. What, what that Surely means, we're in a very competitive financial services market, though, Doc. The banks all wouldn't just put up prices at the same time, of would they? Of course. Have they have done that in the past, haven't they? <laughs> Except <laughs> for right. one of, exception. Back to, back to reality. <laughs> uh, back. So, but, but that what basically means is, that, you know, there's the credit growth, or mm-hmm. as they say, you know, people borrowing more money, it becomes harder for people to borrow more money if the interest rates go up. Right. So um, <laughs> that directly often means that the banks, are going to maybe make investors. So banks have a tight line to you know um, follow here. If they don't increase rates, they are they're going to be you know borrowing more money and not making as much money. But if they increase it too much, then they're not going to be lending as much because people will not be borrowing as much. So there's you know there's a fine line for them to dance here. I'm, I'm going to be watching their tango. And neither of those scenarios sounds very positive for profit growth. For banks. No, no, it, it's yeah. Uh, overall, long term, you know, it doesn't look very good for you know if you if you're a bank shareholder in terms of profit growth. Um, I wouldn't be expecting much. So bad news for bank shareholders, bad news for homeowners, good news for renters, I guess. Yeah, good news for renters. First home buyers. And good news for future buyers. All right. So if you're out there and you're looking to buy a home, it depends whether you want to believe ANZ or DOC, and you can either buy a house for something between 10 and 25% less than the peak price. In the future. We'll see. Maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll hold you to that one. I'll, I'll come. If, if, if I never mention it again, it's because yeah. you're right. If I do mention it again, it's because you're wrong. Oh, if I'm right, I'll mention we'll it many we, times. Oh, you so, will, you, you're, so you're not going to escape that. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, speaking, no. speaking of the exception to the interest rate increases, the, the big exception was NAB. And so they're paying themselves as the good guys. Mm-hmm. Are they? Unfortunately, well, unfortunately, <laughs> the law firm Slater and Gordon doesn't think so. Mm. They are going to launch a class action against MLC, which is a, a subsidiary of NAB. To allege that they sold worthless credit card insurance. Now we have to say this is potentially before the courts, and we don't want to we don't want to suggest anything is proven just yet. But they're saying they sold insurance to people who would never be able to claim on it because they simply didn't qualify to claim in the first place. So it's kind of like selling someone a car service plan if you don't own a car, right? There's not a lot you can do with that thing. You pay the money. If you're never ever going to be able to claim on it, and Clayton and Gordon say that's a uh, that's unconscionable. It, it convenes the ASIC Act in their view. They're alleging. Uh, have the banks done anything right in the last year and a half? <laughs> a lot wrong, I can see. <laughs> yeah, the banks and the insurance sector oh, overall, the banking and the insurance sector has been in, in the sort of, you know, in the hot seat. Hasn't it? Um, yeah. 
And a lot of bad news um, in terms of you know selling people insurance that they don't need, selling people insurance that they don't understand, uh, selling people in you know selling insurance to people who do not actually have the ability to understand, and charging dead people fees, and then charging dead people <laughs> fees. So yeah, I mean yeah. this is all allegations. So you know, yes. y- y- you know until it's proven, we don't know. So and every, if every allegation was true, then it's going to be a problem. True, uh, so true. I don't yeah. So I don't want to extend that. But yeah, the, it's it's Man. not been good for the banks. Here's, here's the summary from the Oz, the Australian. In a single sentence, the alleged victims include students, the unemployed and those on disability pensions who the bank should have known would have derived little or no benefit from the product, which the law firm has alleged is a breach of the ASIC Act 2001. So, yeah, we'll That's true. Decide. I mean, it's, it's all vulnerable people in some sense Man. or the other. I mean, people who are not making much money, people who are on the sidelines in terms of, you know, earnings growth. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, speaking of people who should have known better, mm-hmm. I have to. I, I know. I know this is painful for you, but I have to bring it up. Yes, Elon Musk, mm-hmm. the, the the boss of Tesla, the the billionaire uh, playboy genius, the the motivation for Iron Man, all those great things, and they're undoubtedly true. Was charged with fraud this morning by the SEC, the mm-hmm. US version of our ASIC, and they've said that Elon has done the wrong thing. He should pay a massive fine and be banned as an office holder or director of a public company. Mm-hmm. For his tweet saying that he was going to take Tesla private at 420 bucks a share and that funding was secured. In fact, he didn't even say funding was. He's just the tweet, funding secured, the mm-hmm. kind of tagline that's got some mirth around the place. Musk has come out, of course, as a result of that and said, I've done nothing wrong. I acted with integrity. It's super important to me. This is unfounded. I won't put words in his mouth, but effectively saying, I'm innocent. I'll defend the whole thing. Mate, it's very, very ugly. Give us a very quick potted history of what happened and then tell us what you're thinking about Musk's current predicament. Okay, so the, the quick overview is this: you know, Musk over the last year has been, um, sup- you know, quite a bit. I would say, um, fascinated or you know, maybe sidetracked by what's going on with the stock, which is yeah. essentially the stock is heavily short. It's one of the highest shorted stocks on uh, in the U.S. Uh, market, yep. um, and he's he's been you know publicly fighting the shorts. So. Um, uh, and I think he, you know, maybe he strongly believes that uh, there's a problem here with the shorts trying to drive the sh- share price down, which has other implications in terms of their convertible debt, which we are going to talk about in well. other contexts later. <laughs> um, but they have a con- convertible debt which would convert to equity and not they're not having to pay back if the share price is at a certain level. So I think that's sort of the driving motivation here. Um, and, and therefore, he's been, you know, toying with the idea that, you know, maybe he can take the company, you know, pub- uh, private and he doesn't mm-hmm. have to then deal with, you know, quarterly milestones and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and, and I sort of see that point here. I mean, you know, it's a company that's doing something very transformative in 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 energy, in in transportation, and it's really changing the business model altogether. So, I mean, those things don't happen overnight. They don't happen in in one quarter. They take right. actually a long time to happen. Right. So, uh, his his point there is fair. Now, maybe he pushed it a little too far by uh, you know by you know uh, tweeting saying uh, funding secured when it looks like he didn't have anything written, mm-hmm. um, other than some meetings he has had with uh, some uh, sovereign wealth funds mm. um so uh, the sec i think is right in uh, in holding him um i would be however soup I'd, I'd be surprised if the sec is able to actually defend its position in a court uh, where and prove that you know he did it um, um with the intent of stock price manipulation and I think it's always difficult to prove things in the court, and you have to prove it, and uh, and and that's that's hard. Yeah. And the most likely outcome here is that he's going to be given a fine, 
uh, and or some other sort of compromise is drawn. And, and I think SEC is right in pursuing it. Mm. That said, if the outcome was, if the outcome is that you know Elon Musk is essentially banned from uh, um, from serving as an officer on Tesla mm. or as as an officer of SpaceX or any other company, that's just you know just just not bad for uh, uh, the markets as a whole. It's just bad for. A lot of things, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of innovations are happening there. So, you know, I'm not giving a free pass for what he has done, um, but I, I do believe his statement that he his intent was to take it private, mm. and um, and if, therefore, you know, there's maybe a fine line here that need to be drawn. But yeah, that's the sort of the story. I think that yeah, that's a really interesting point. So this is the challenge, right? So fraud is a ironically the more serious the allegation, the harder it is to prove and the harder it is to find, as you say, that positive. So saying hey, you did the wrong thing, you 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 kind of you know. Um, so, so some other people, including uh, John Mackey, who is the, uh, the one of our on our board of directors at the Monthly Fool, um, have been slapped over the wrist before for doing things on Twitter or doing things in public forums that were improper. Yeah, and they haven't. That, that's not fraud necessarily. And frankly, uh, who's the other one? It was um, no uh, Reed Hastings. Reed Hastings yeah, and Netflix. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. they, they've been they've been kind of taken to task for doing things that otherwise maybe should have been done differently, or at least um, warned against doing it again. At some level, that's a different level of allegation than straight out fraud, which is what Musk's been charged with by the SEC and requires almost by definition, definition then a higher burden of proof or at least you know yeah. a, a more a more deliberate um, action needs to have been shown to have taken part. It's one thing to say, well, hey, you, you, you kind of you missed you know subsection three paragraph four of yeah. the communication and disclosure you know rules or something. There's nothing to say you you've committed fraud, and that's a whole different yeah. story. So I think I agree with you. I think. I think I said this morning on Skype with with our, our group. I think Musk is has been very emotional on Twitter last of the last twelve months. I think he needs to take a step back and kind of recenter where he's at. I know the shorts have been stressing him out. I think it was frankly stupid, if I can be that blunt, to to tweet the way he did. I think it was badly, badly misinformed. Um, I think he would probably regret having done it. Uh, the question really is: has, is, is it deliberate fraud? Has it was it a fraudulent action, or was it just was it just misjudgment and kind of a really dumb thing to do? I, I do believe it's probably in the latter group. I don't think there was deliberate fraud intended there. Um, it may have been born out of frustration. It may have been born out of some not thinking particularly clearly or straight and frankly, not getting enough quality counsel from other people. Yep. Hopefully you'll learn from that. I think a fine is appropriate. I think banning him from office is probably a tough a tough response. I think one of those, hey, dude, this was really bad. It looks bad. It feels bad. It probably is bad. Don't do it again. It's probably pretty fair. Yep. <clears throat> Agree. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's move on from Mr. Musk, mate. And speaking of, as you said, convertible debt, let's spend a little bit of time, not too much time, because everyone loves convertible debt, but it doesn't make great podcast listening. Yeah. That being said, Zero did a real so Zero is the cloud accounting software business. It did a really interesting thing this week. So you know, most corporates are paying debt at around, I want to say, 6 7% interest, mm-hmm. give or take, particularly in Australia. You might be able to get 4 or 5 overseas. Zero is going to pay interest at only 2.375%. So let's call it 2.4% among friends. That's really, really, really low. And they did it because there's a little bit of upside if the lenders are keen enough to take part. So they're getting less now, possibly a whole lot more later. And it's called convertible debt. They get to turn that debt into shares at a pre-agreed price in the future if certain conditions are met. Let's not delve too much into the specific numbers, but just give me a sense of what that is and why they do it. Right. So, so just to backtrack a little bit here, one interesting thing is, you know, if, if a company wants to raise money, they could have gone to the market and said, okay, we will raise money via selling more shares. Right. That's basically dilution at the current price. Yep. 
Right, so as you 10% said- 10% more shares get sold. I own 10% less of the company. Yeah. My earnings, my dividends per share fall a little bit. Exactly. Okay. So instead of that, and then you could go and you know, borrow the market, as you said, and you can borrow at a higher rate. That's or expensive. That's expensive. Pay a lot back you, and rates probably going to go right. up. So, or you could do what they did is, is essentially convertible debt, which is essentially, you know, you pay a coupon or an interest right now for mm-hmm. the next five years. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of five years, there's a potential mm. for either paying back the, mm, the debt yep. or converting that debt to equity. And it would almost most likely convert to equity if the share price is higher than the current price. And the, here's the interesting thing, and I think it's interesting, that they, um, they said, and I think it's around $46 US is the conversion price. Mm-hmm. In, in, I think, five years, right? Which in current, um, I guess, conversion, AUD to mm-hmm. USD conversion rate mm-hmm. would be about 78, 70%, more okay. than what the current price is. Right. So, um, and, and just so we're clear here, the, the lenders would do that because they're, they're, they, want, they either get their money back in their, in their 2.4%, mm-hmm. or if the share price is higher than the price, the, what we call the strike price, or the price that's going to convert at, they can actually make some pr- some immediate profits right so yep. it, let's let's keep the numbers really round for a second if the share price is $50 now yeah my conversion price is 70 bucks yeah if the shares are 100 bucks when we convert it yeah i get to i get to convert it 70 and get an immediate $30 profit right because exactly. I, I get shares worth 100 bucks for $70 a share and that's where the the lenders are taking that risk of getting a little bit of money now yeah and possibly a big upside later yeah the, 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 yeah it's, it's, it's all that's all correct i mean, i think Zero here too is taking some risk because right. a the conversion uh, price is in US dollars. Mm-hmm. So if if our dollar falls <laughs> to fifty cents, uh, zero has a you know um, I guess well, in that case zero has to pay back the money because it shares might not have actually hit the point. Right, exactly. Right. And so, zero doesn't want to have to pay back the cash. Right? And zero so, doesn't want to pay they, back. <laughs> so, well, let's go to that. Right. So so let's talk, why would zero? So I get why a lender would say, okay, well. I'll take a little bit less now for the upside if they really believe in the story. They, yep. That's why they would take convertible debt. Why would Zero do that though? Why not? Why wouldn't they want to just pay back the money? What, what's the what, what's the what's the consideration they're going through as to how and why they'd issue shares at that point? Well, well, at that point you're issuing shares at a much higher price, right? So the dilution is significantly less, right? So that so mm-hmm. that's an advantage. I mean, that the advantage is less dilution for current holders. And they've said they don't want to issue shares at the current price. I think it's undervalued, yeah. but they'd happily issue at a higher price, price. Yeah. at some point in the at future. Some point. And they think maybe that. That's the fair price at that point, right? Except or, that, uh, which they don't know the, the future. Well, so that's the funny thing, right? So at yeah. some level, it's kind of, you kind of go, okay, well, good work, guys. Good work for not diluting now at the current price. Yeah. On the flip side, if the shares are 100 bucks a share in five years, they've also then under... They've, un- they've undersold themselves and still diluted shareholders at an unreasonably yeah. low price because they could have sold shares in five years at 100 bucks a share. Yeah. Which they could have done to actually pay back the loan. Yeah. So there's kind of this weird thing going on where everyone's taking a bit of risk and, and they're kind of trading a bit of upside for a bit of downside, a bit of downside for a bit of upside. Yeah. It's somehow like it's a more variable solution, but it's it, it, there's no free lunch, right? No, there's the no lenders aren't getting a free lunch. Zero's not getting a free yep. lunch. They're all betting on which way things might move. Yeah, they're, they're all making a, a bet here. The, and the other interesting thing is that you know, if zero is going to become cash flow positive, it maybe doesn't need the money, right? And in, it's, True, there's always right, this okay. cataclysmic sort of scenario where your share price is not there. Mm-hmm. You don't have cash, right. and you got to pay cash, which is exactly what you talked about. It's just sort of the Tesla situation, right? I mean, Tesla has got a convertible debt, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and a lot of these drama is because of the convertible debt. Um, so, so yeah. you know, you could always land up in in a sticky situation because you've got convertible debt. So, I mean, you know, debt is still debt. <laughs> yeah, I will say to him, I, I have no 
strong view on Tesla or zero use of debt, mostly because I don't claim to understand in, in immense detail what their capital structures are like and what their future prospects are like and cash flow stuff. So I don't want to have too much of you. You may have a more view on Tesla. But I have to say, just and to invoke my favorite investor, maybe maybe yours, maybe not, Warren Buffett. Um, you know, Warren Buffett has said that almost every time he's used debt, uh, sorry, used equity issuances as as in exchange for, in, in other words, buying companies. I mean, in his case, it's been a mistake because he's given away parts of the company that have become worth far, far more than the business he acquired in the first place because of the subsequent growth of those share prices. And I, I I'm kind of torn, right? If you if you don't. If, you don't, if you're using debt, yes, they can have a hold over the company. If you don't pay the debt back, you're in trouble. If you use equity, well, there's no repayment requirement, so you kind of never never risk the business. On the other hand, if you're giving away slugs of equity from time to time, if zero goes on to be worth $200, $300 a share and you've issued shares at $50 or $70, it, I mean, it might still be expensive relative to today's price, but if it ends up being cheap relative to the price in 10 years' time, you've still given away a chunk of the company and economically, as, as Buffett has found, it's rarely, in his experience, a good thing. Again, he doesn't have necessarily the same debt pressures or cash flow pressures as some of these other businesses, but uh, debt's risky, but equity can be much, much more expensive over the long term. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it and it's not clear why they're raising the money. Maybe they have an acquisition in mind or they have an acquisition pipeline that they're looking at and they need the money now. So And they figure that this is a, you know, a lesser dilution yeah, versus uh, you know, the future or uh, other options. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, I'm going to introduce a brand new segment just for fun. Okay. I, haven't, I haven't told you about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Darn. This is going to be stock in 60 seconds, just mm-hmm. because we're going to keep moving in the podcast. Okay. Afterpay. We want to talk about Afterpay. We don't have all that much time, but we do want to hit the highlights. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds, give or take. Mm. Well, I won't be that harsh. I'll give you some time. Okay. Uh, Afterpay, big, big stock going through the roof. Everyone's raving about this thing. Afterpay's going to the dentist. Afterpay smiling. Oh, there you go. You should write headlines. Mm. Now, <laughs> now they're doing a deal with. So, so tell me what the deal is, mm. and then tell me how on earth they're going to repossess the product if things don't get paid. <laughs> okay, so the deal is, I think, with uh, with um, uh, Total Smiles uh, is the firm. I think right. is it is it called Total Smiles. Uh, smiles, I think it's ASX listed Smiles. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you'd repossess. Well, there's no repossession of product anyways in uh, Afterpay's model, right? So Very if you true. buy the jeans, you buy the jeans. Right, and in right. this case, um, I mean, their claim is that they're basically allowing people to pay as you go kind of thing. This is like a pay as you go sort of oh. service and they're allowing people more people buy to- Buy now, pay later. Buy now, pay as you go kind of thing or pay, yeah. pay over a period of time. And So, in, so at Primary Dental- I've just, I've just, I've just searched uh, Afterpay Smiles. The first link is for Afterpay at Primary Dental. Smile now, pay later. Yeah, well, that? that's maybe that's your headline, that, right? That's an, yeah. So yeah, dentists uh, can be expensive. Dentists, mm-hmm. you know, and dental procedures can cost a lot of money. Yes, a lot of young people. This is Afterpay's claim. A lot of young people, or there are there's there is a big segment of people who don't have the money to pay for it now, right? And and therefore they're enabling them to avail of the service, and by essentially using installment payment schemes. That uh, that's what Afterpay does, and it therefore expands uh, the market opportunity for the the dentists uh, and it expands the market opportunity for Afterpay. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? <sighs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I see you're not convinced, but I, uh, I don't have a view, but I mean, you, you definitely look not convinced. I Look, on one hand, I think, you know what, if you can if you can pay with something on a credit card, you might as well pay with it on Afterpay. There's no fundamental difference between the two in terms of 
if I, if I got a credit card in my back pocket, you know, uh, there's a fundamental difference. Go on. I get Qantas points. <laughs> <laughs> or freaking flyer points. You can't, hey, nothing, nothing compares to a beautiful smile, Doc. Oh, but I get the smile and the points. I love the points. All right. <laughs> that's, that's, what, our, yeah. that's our time up. <laughs> Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We're going to go to a question now to finish off today. Um, out of the full moment. Now, Phil, if you are listening to us, and you obviously are, otherwise you can't hear this, and it would be a waste of time me talking. Um, we love your questions and comments and feedback. So if you want to have a sense of questions, send us a comment, send us some feedback, only nice ones, please, um, you can email us at info at fool.com.au or probably more easily jump on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, you really should be. It's a great news source, even if you just follow along and don't post yourself. Um, but jump on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU or at Anirban Mahanti, or at TMF Scott P. That's our Twitter handles. Throw us a question. Um, we love to hear what's on your minds, because frankly, while well, we can talk about things we think are great, and we hope you'll enjoy them too, we'd much prefer to hear from you guys as to what you think is worth talking about. So uh, please jump, hit us up on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU, or email us at info at fool.com.au, and we'll answer your question. Captain, I'm going to just add shoot. my, please send us questions. We love your questions. There you go. That's two of us. Yeah. All right. Uh, so David, David sent us a, a message. He said, uh, I, won't, I won't read out the numbers because I'm not sure if this was, I think it was actually publicly, but it might not have been. So I won't read out the numbers. Scott, we have some money in our SMSF account just earning bank interest. It's a decent amount, six figure for some. Uh, already have a couple of rentals. So we're thinking to invest in a Vanguard ETF. Or are we better to pick individual stocks? We are both 52 and we would like a strong income stream after 65. So, Doc, there's a 13-year gap until they want the income mm. stream. That income stream needs to last. Mm-hmm. They've already got some rental properties. What should they do? Invest in a Vanguard ETF or pick some individual stocks? Okay. So, as a stock picker, I'd say, you know, individual stocks are a great place <laughs> You kind of have to, to, right? That's part I, of your job. Well, that's, you, know, that's my, you know, I don't want to lose my job. Okay? So, you know, uh, but, but, yeah, and, and I honestly believe that if you pick stocks and you pick the stocks, you know, you, you use one of our services, you'd, you'd mm. beat the market over the long term, you'd get a meaningful, uh, if you can get a meaningful one or two percentage points uh, mm-hmm. ahead, even one or two percentage points over the long term is, is quite a bit, right? And if you do two or three, that's even better. Right. Uh, so, that's the first thing. Um, so, individual stocks definitely, in my mind, are better. Uh, with but that said if if that's too much work um yep. and it's hard um then etfs are fine as as an option but mm-hmm. i'd like to say a couple of things there one is that if i'm guessing from the question that you know if you are already have got rentals which means you essentially own properties and you're renting them out you're making an income out of them mm-hmm. um you already have exposure to the uh, housing sector in yep. australia and if you buy an etf make sure that you don't have more housing exposure <laughs> through that ETF. Now, if you buy an And ETF, housing, you're not talking about just property, right? You're talking about banks. And I'm j- basically talking about banks because, right. you know, banks are essentially uh, property exposure, right? I mean, right. give you uh, a decent or <laughs> a lot of property exposure to uh, in uh, in Australia. Where goes the property market kind of goes bank profits. Exactly. So, right. so um, if you buy the Vanguard ETF that essentially um, mimics the All Ordinaries or, or the, the Vanguard um, ASX 300, for example, mm-hmm. you are effectively getting what, about what, 30% of banks and maybe... T- uh, about 40 to 45% total financial. Financial banks, uh, Major banks, small banks, insurance companies, and financial related. So, yeah, yeah. kind of two, somewhere between a f- a two-fifths and half the market is yeah, financial. That, that's a very heavy exposure. So I it really would, is. Uh, yeah. So, I would, you know, <laughs> unlike many other... Uh, I, would, I would be careful in mm-hmm. what ETFs one picks. Mm-hmm. 
because you know you might think that you're buying an ETF and you're getting diversification. You're getting diversification because you're getting multiple uh, different companies in the ETF, but you actually may not be getting diversification because you're buying essentially large chunks of a sector through multiple companies. Yep. So that's one thing to keep in mind. That's I'm not saying that don't buy it, but you know think about allocations. And again, we can't give personal advice. Correct. Um, I would advise or I would say that uh, look at uh, ETFs that. Um, uh, cover international markets. Yep. So th- uh, there's an ETF that covers the S&P 500, the 500 largest companies in the US. There's an ETF that's uh, that covers the 100 companies, non-financial companies on NASDAQ, uh, which is, a, which is re- again, a recommendation in our services. Mm-hmm. So that's the NASDAQ 100 ETF. Um, look at look at a mixture of different ETFs, mm-hmm. and you could build a good portfolio out of them. They would you know they would yep. essentially give you a combination of some sort of market beating over maybe the um, you know the all ordinaries because you're just picking different markets, yep. uh, and you could definitely do better um, by or you you could potentially do better by picking uh, individual stocks. Yep. Nice. You could also mix them. You could also and you could do, also do worse by picking individual stocks too, right? You, so if you you're going to be a stock picker, either make sure you're good at it or find someone who is. We would recommend our services, of course, that are beating the market, which we like. Um, but but worth mentioning that, of course, you don't want to. Uh, yeah, if you're going to pick stocks, you, there's there's upside and there's downside potential, which is yeah. which is exactly what you, you would expect. Uh, but worth keeping that in mind as well. If you're someone who just wants a market return and you're very happy with that, and that'd be a great return, by the way, compounded over the long term. There's absolutely no harm in that. Absolutely. Let me add a couple of thoughts, Doctor. That uh, that's a really solid answer. I, I love it. I, 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 you know what I hate about ETFs? I hate the number of ETFs there are now because ETF mm. used to be used to be a byword for large diversified broad index investments. Mm-hmm. Now you can get an ETF, which is a reverse double engineered, over leveraged, you know, golden mines only in Kenya specific ETF, right? And so that might be great, by the way. I'm sure it's wonderful. <laughs> but there are there's there's more ETFs than stocks now. I think I want to say a lot um, of ETFs because you know, and, and guess what? The financial services industry is great at finding ways of costing us all money. So they they think, well, you know, I'm going to invent all these ETFs and charge people a lot of fees, and it's an ETF, so they'll feel like it's a low cost index fund, but it's really not. So when we say ETFs, we're not talking about the reverse double, you know, twist. With Pike ETF that costs you two and a half percent to, you know, leverage the price of coffee in Colombia. We're talking about really, really broad market ETFs. So I think that David is too. But just to be really clear to everybody, not ETF, not all ETFs are the same. There's no single word. There's no single approach to ETFs that we would arbitrarily endorse. So broad market ETF, as, as Doc mentioned, is exactly what we're talking about. David, I reckon if you want to build a diversified portfolio over time, individual stocks from a trusted stock picker or do your own research is wonderful. If you're not going to pick at least 20 stocks over that next 13 years and build a diversified portfolio, ETFs are a wonderful way to start. I hardly endorse stocks view about the balance of local and overseas uh, plus industry diversification. Uh, Doc's mentioned there's a, there's a Vanguard uh, ETF for the Australian market, which you could look at. Um, but again, just be careful of how much property exposure you have. The other thing I would say is don't do too much overseas if you want A, the income, and B, you are worried about currency fluctuations that will matter to you. So just balance that a little bit. Um, A local ETF around the the Australian market is probably useful. Uh, The NASDAQ ETF is a good one. There's a Vanguard ETF, which is all developed markets, which I quite like. Um, so there's, uh, which is the VGS is the code. The NASDAQ one is NDQ. And these aren't, again, individual recommendations, but for further research, VAS is the code for the Australian one. So have a look at those. The other option is do both, right? Start with an ETF and then build out, as you feel better about it, start to add individual stocks as you get more comfortable. And maybe that middle way might be the best way for you to start. And just build as you go. You can always buy and sell ad, uh, as you go. Just be mindful, again, if you are looking for income post-65, you either want now or you want over time to be moving into those types of companies rather than necessarily. So the NASDAQ ETF, for example, won't give you any income at all or not much. Um, and frankly, it's not likely to anytime soon. Now, the growth should more than cover that. 
just be mindful if you're looking for fully frank dividends, you're not going to get those from NASDAQ. You want to get capital gains from that instead. So I'll, I'll quickly add one thing. So you, you, buy, you could buy some growth companies now, which are, say, paying 1% dividend, and over maybe 13 years, they, you know, at that point, on your capital investment, they're actually paying maybe 2% dividend or 3% dividend or 4% dividend because they have sort of matured at that time. So, I mean, that's always possible and does happen. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I think that's true. I, I will, again, just for the sake of, we'll, we'll, we'll try and wrap this up, but just for the sake of it, if you're going to have to pay capital gains tax to get out, then put that money back in something else to get higher dividends. Um, just be mindful of what you're looking for and what you're getting out of it. I actually think that's perfectly fine. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, bring Warren Buffett back. He, he said in the past that people want dividends from Berkshire are actually better to sell small amounts of Berkshire rather than look for the dividends. The, the way you derive income from shares doesn't have to be just from the dividends that are paid. Australians kind of used to that, and I get it, and that's kind of kind of instinctively sensible. Uh, Buffett's mathematically shown that if you just sold, if you, if you met your income needs by selling small proportions of a Berkshire holding over the last X number of years, you'd be better off doing that than Buffett having paid out a dividend. So to Doc's point, you could you could even keep the, you keep the NASDAQ, let the growth happen, and then just sell small proportions of your NASDAQ holding, for example, every six months to fund income. So there's different ways of generating income. Uh, don't be fooled into believing you'd have to just buy uh, a dividend-paying stock and, and deal with that. Often, you're actually better off getting a, a company with more growth potential and taking a slice of that off the table over time. Cool. All right. That's it. Uh, thank you for, for listening. And don't forget, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app, as we always say. And if you do like what we do, please do us the favor of giving us a rating on your app, whether that's iTunes or something else, and tell your friends. The only way people find out about this podcast is largely, well, maybe through a bit of our marketing, but usually through word of mouth from you guys or when they jump on iTunes or the, the podcast app, just jumping on the business or investing section and seeing what's there. Uh, the better the ratings, the better reviews. And frankly, the more reviews there are, the more people can find out about us. And if you're enjoying it, I reckon other people will too. And also you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish goodness. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.